going to be in Judges 10 this morning. Judges 10, starting with verse 6. We're going to go all the way up through uh, chapter 11, verse 11. It's a smaller portion than we've uh, been covering the last few weeks, uh, but an important portion as well. The main idea of the text this morning, the main idea that I want you to walk away with, is that God does not rescue without ruling. He does not rescue without ruling. We're going to look at the text in five parts, which uh, I've titled probably not so well, but uh, starting at chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 6 through 9. We're going to see that the people are crushed, and then verses 10 through 14, we're going to see the people cry, and God respond to that cry. We're going to see the people surrender in chapter 10, verses 15 through 16. We're going to meet Jephthah in verses 17 through 11, verse 3. And then we're going to see a replay in chapter 11, verses 4 through 11 of what we saw in chapter 10 a little bit. It's going to look really, really familiar, and I hope to point that out to you. This morning, some of the applications, some of the things that I would like to exhort you to do that I think the text can teach us is that we need to set our hope singularly on Jesus, examine your treasure, reorient yourself around Jesus, utilize your experience Love the church and submit to the king. Before we get into all that and before we dive into this text, uh, would you join me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make us submissive to your word. God, the message of your kingship over our lives is one that often rubs us the wrong way. Especially in a culture where we are told that we define ourselves that we are autonomous beings and that no one can tell us what to do. It's difficult for us to recognize both that we need rescued from our sin, from ourselves. Not only do we need rescued, but we need to be ruled by you, the God of the universe. Ready us to hear this difficult word, this message that makes so many men and women angry. Help us to hear it and to submit to it. We ask all these things by your Holy Spirit. Amen. So starting with verse 6, we're going to see that the people are again crushed because they are again seduced by the slavery of idols. Look with me at verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria And the gods of Sidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Israel here is not only serving idols, but a whole bunch of idols. The idols of seven different people groups. It's no mistake that there are seven different people groups because it probably even went beyond that. But the author uses the number seven to point out the total spiritual corruption that has taken place in Israel. They are just like their Canaanite neighbors. Instead of being a light, they would light up the darkness around them. The darkness has enveloped them. They've become a part of it. Totally corrupt by these false gods that they've been following. Thus the author records, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. I think we see this same truth today when we try to take our Christianity or parts of it that we like and combine it with other uh, philosophies or ways of thinking. We're left with no religion because we embrace all religions. 
the light becomes a darkness. Verse 7, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel. For 18 years they oppressed the people of Israel, who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. And so Israel was severely distressed. And when we read that God sold Israel into the hand of the Philistines and the Ammonites, we shouldn't take it as a signal that God has completely abandoned his people or nullified his promises to them. Rather, as Tim Keller points out, God stopped protecting his people in some way. He lets the things that the Israelites had been serving actually begin to dominate and to own them. To say it differently, God gives them over to that which they have chosen. He gives them over to their desires, the idols, and the people of those idols. Think Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 uh, gives us a very fascinating parallel passage. Let me read it to you. Verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The people exchanged the glory of God and the right worship of him in favor of idols. And as a result, God gives them over to the lusts of their hearts. He lets them have what they want. Idols. In an ironic way, Romans points out, and I think this passage as well, that the judgment for idolatry is in fact idolatry. More idolatry. The Lord sells Israel into slavery. Into the slavery that the nation has chosen. To their idols and to their people. They've set their hearts, their hopes on these counterfeit gods. And these counterfeit gods, this counterfeit religion, cannot save or satisfy. It only leads to destruction. Now Israel knows that something is wrong, but they misdiagnose the problem. They don't recognize that their problem is a worship problem, right? Well, they they do in a way. They just think that they're not worshiping enough the idols that they have already gathered around themselves. Some of the idols that they're serving here, we saw them serve very early on in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and it led to their oppression. But instead of repenting of that and returning to the living God, they return to these false idols. And so they gather more and more and more of them around themselves. And they think, we're just going to do a better job of worshiping these counterfeit gods. And hey, that's going to work things out for us. I don't think that we are any different. right? We don't go to a temple and and bow down to, to large idols. But we do give ourselves completely to things and to people that are not God. We make them gods. We look to them for our validation, for our deliverance. I think an easy example here is money, right? Everyone wants more money. No one's satisfied with how much they have. And no matter how much you get, 
It's just never enough, right? Sometimes we think if I just get more money, uh, everything will, will be all right. Life will be easier. I'll be happy. Or maybe, uh, maybe you're a people pleaser. And so you evaluate your worth based on what other people think of you. So you do all that you can to make everybody like you. Make everybody think that you're, you're just a good guy or a good gal. Guess what? Some people still don't like you. And so instead of recognizing that you have a problem of worshiping people's approval or looking to others for your worth and your validation, you plunge more into it. You say, I'm going to work harder and make everyone like me. You become a slave to the approval of others. You remain unsatisfied. Even though your uh, adage is, if I just get enough people to like me, I will know that I have value as a person that I am worthwhile and everything will be okay. Or maybe, uh, maybe you live a little vicariously through your children or through your parents or through uh, your husband or wife. I think a, a good example of this is uh, a show I actually haven't watched all the way through, so maybe it's not, I don't know. But have you seen the, the, that show? I don't know what network it's on, but the moms like dress their like four and five years old, five-year-olds up for like a beauty pageant. Have you seen this? And they compete against one another. I did some Googling, and I think the name of the show was, uh, was Toddlers and Tiaras, or, or something along those lines, some, some, some sweet title like that. But, uh, but what you see even in the commercials for a show like this is, like, the moms are, like, having fist fights, like, in the back based on what happens on the runway. And it's because that they are looking to their child's achievements to justify them, to justify their existence, to find meaning in life, to find purpose in life. So they make an idol out of their, their child. It's a little bit uh, blunt there, right, on a show like that. But I think it illustrates a, something that's true in our lives, just not as obvious, that we are prone to make idols out of people. Some of us, our children, other of us, our, our parents or grandparents. I mean, even here, for, for in, in this case, I think the children uh, are done a disservice as well. As their parents look to them for their satisfaction and for their purpose in life, it's all about their child's achievements. The child is under that pressure, right? If I don't succeed, oh man. But if I do succeed, maybe mom will love me for me. It's required for earning. There's idolatry here and it's unsatisfying. It's not good. You see it too with athletics, right? I've seen parents do this with their kids. They pay all kinds of money for the kid to have a coach to help them become the best at a particular athletic position, right? They almost say to themselves, if my son becomes the starting quarterback, man, I will have made it as a parent. I'm going to put all that I have into making my son become the starting quarterback. It's going to be great. And the son thinks, if I just become the starting quarterback, everything will be good. I'll be a success. Maybe it's a less obvious version. You just think, hey, if I just raise decent kids, good American citizens, then I will have made it. Everything will be all right. All these examples, and there's many, many more if you, if you want to think about uh, some of the things in your own life, exemplify the danger of making uh, false gods, whether it's money or approval or whatever you look to, anything other than Jesus to give you value, worth or meaning or satisfaction is ultimately going to be a disappointment to you. When we set our hope on anything other than Jesus Christ, we are sinning. We're breaking the, when I think the most simple commandment, right? Don't have any other gods before me. Yet we uh, 
we take these things that are not God's and we elevate them to the position of God. And they're usually good things, right? But we turn them into God things and that makes them very, very bad things. I want you to think about what rules your life. What is it that you cannot live without? Who is it that you can't live without? Your answer will probably reveal that on which your hope is set. If it's not Jesus, you've just identified an idol. Or maybe this question, what's most fundamental to my happiness? What is most fundamental to your happiness? Whatever the answer is, that's your God, functionally. It's an idol. You need to find a way to replace it with Jesus through repentance. Everyone lives for something. Everyone's hope is set on something. And it will be a created thing or a person, or it will be the living God. Where is your hope set? Friends, I exhort you this morning to set your hope singularly, wholly on the one that is holy, Jesus Christ. Because he alone can satisfy and he alone can save. Israel's problem is not a matter of inadequate idol worship, but of wrong worship, of a wrong heart. And so God allows them the fruits of their false worship. And they end up crushed. It's out of this oppression, out of this crushing, that the people cry out in verse 10. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Verse 11, and the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians and also the Amalekites and the Mayanites who oppressed you? And you cried out to me and I saved you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your distress. Israel cries to God. But God recognizes their cry as a response that is in worldly sorrow and regret, not repentance. If you remember a few weeks back in chapter 6, we kind of saw something similar when the prophet was sent to Israel rather than a deliverer in verses 7 through 10. And it pointed out the same dichotomy, that there is a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Remember we looked into it, we flipped all the way over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and in verse 10 we saw that uh, uh, worldly sorrow has not really any gain, but godly sorrow has great gain. It leads to salvation without regret to life without regret. And we illustrated the difference between a kid who gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar, he's just sorry he got caught, versus someone who is sorry because they, uh, and they're repentant because of the sin against God, because they're separated from the Lord of the universe. We have the same situation here. Israel was making a phony cry of repentance to God, and they're filled with this worldly sorrow. Not sorry about worshiping idols. They're sorry about being oppressed by the people of those idols. The many gods on which they've set their hope are not bringing them any type of rescue. But they remember that, hey, this other God, 
uh, he's delivered us a few times. Why not try him? And so they cry out to God. Not because they want him, not because they're repentant, but because they, or not because they want his lordship, but because they want his stuff. They want what he can give them. They want his rescue, but they don't want his rule. But you can't have God's rescue without his rule. It's a little bit like those old Southwest Airlines commercials. Uh, do y'all remember those? Uh, something goes horribly wrong, typically, and then the voice comes on and says, want to get away? Uh, the one I remember is uh, there's uh, two guys, they're playing with a new video game system, and he's got the controller in his hand, and they're playing a baseball video game, and he's going, look, it mimics my every move, and the batter in the batter box on the TV kind of does everything he does with the bat. And he says to his buddy, it's just like being outside. All right, now, now throw me a pitch just like you're outside. And his buddy takes the controller and just throws it against the TV screen. And TV breaks and falls down. And the line comes on, you know, want to get away? Right? That's, that's Israel's situation here. They simply just want to get away. They don't want the Lord. They want God's rescue, but not his rule. And you can't have one without the other. God's response to Israel reminds them of his past rescues, of his past actions. And this is interesting. He points out seven times where he's delivered them to show that he has totally rescued them in contrast to their total spiritual corruption. They've given themselves to the gods of seven different peoples. After reminding Israel of, their, of his past rescues of them, he points out their ungrateful response, their abandonment of him. And he rejects this inauthentic cry. And he tells them with appropriate sarcasm, mind you, to ask the gods that they truly worship for deliverance. I think Block paraphrases well here. He says, in effect, God says, show some consistency. You've made your bed, now sleep in it. Michael Wilcock explains this verse by saying, the Lord is saying, I know what this cry of yours is. It's merely a cry for help which might as well be addressed to the false gods, to the balls, as it is to me. Israel here is not truly repentant, but simply wants to get away. Thus, they treat the God of the universe like any one of their idols. They turn to God in an idolatrous way. They're trying to push the right buttons in order to get him to exert his power on their behalf. They're trying to manipulate God. Hey, if we cry out to him, then he has to save us, right? The faith that they're exerting towards God is as counterfeit as their false gods. They don't want God. They simply want what he can give them. Let me ask you, do you want God or just what he can give you? Do you ever think to yourself, I'll follow Jesus if, fill in the blank. Or perhaps, I want Jesus because he will give me X. However you fill in that blank, that is an idol. That's a God in your life. You're not really following God because of the relationship you can have with him. But because you want his stuff. You want what he can give you. I follow God so that my family will be kept safe. Your family and safety are your idols. That's your real God. That's what you're really after. 
not Jesus Christ. What you fill in the blank with is your true God. That thing or person is what you truly worship. It's the place on which your hope is truly set. That's idolatry. And it needs to be repented of. So that it finds its proper place behind Jesus Christ in your affections. There is in our day a terrible false gospel that masquerades uh, as Christian. Perhaps you've heard of it. You know, it's typically called the prosperity gospel. And I'm sure you've, you've seen some of its uh, advocates on television. Uh, the message of these false teachers of this false gospel says basically that if you believe in Jesus, bad things won't happen to you and everything will go well with you. It's typically followed up by uh, a challenge to show how much you believe uh, by giving a financial contribution. And that financial contribution that you make is usually, uh, usually going to bring you some kind of a blessing back, right? Give $1, get $10. Have faith, sow a faith seed. This is disgusting. It makes Jesus a means to an end of gaining worldly things. Jesus a means to an end of gaining an idol. It's a lie that tricks many into thinking that they are following Jesus when in fact they are following the trinkets of this world, of this culture. It's sneaky because our hearts long to lust after the things of this world, things other than Christ. Sometimes it's taught a less obvious way. Uh, the speakers will just uh, preach simply about good things. They won't talk about sin or of suffering. And they just focus on how good everything goes for those that follow Jesus. They'll focus on getting your best life now. The truth is, if you're having your best life now, you are headed for hell. Because your best life is with Jesus in the afterlife. Not now. The truth is that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Because the love of money is such a deadly poison. The truth is, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, with godliness comes contentment. That's great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. The truth is that Christianity is hard. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those that find it are few. Jesus doesn't mince words in Matthew 16, 24 when he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those that follow Jesus pick up a cross that kills not a crown that brings ease and comfort. Followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will not get out of this life unscathed. You will not get out without scars. This calling to follow Jesus is a dangerous calling. 
One of my heroes is, uh, is John Piper. And there's a, a pretty um, popular YouTube video where he talks about the prosperity gospel. And I just could not resist quoting some of it to you here because it's so powerful. He says this, I don't know what you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But I'll tell you what I feel about it. Hatred. It is not the gospel. And it's being exported from this country to Africa and to Asia, selling a bill of goods to the poorest of the poor. Believe this message and your pigs won't die. And your wife won't have miscarriages. You'll have rings on your fingers and coats on your backs. The people, the poor, to whom we should be giving our time, our money, our very lives. Instead, we're going over there and selling them a bunch of crap called gospel. Here is the reason it's so horrible. When was the last time that anyone said that Jesus was all satisfying Because you drove a BMW. Never. They'll say, did Jesus give you that? Well, sure. I'll take Jesus. It's idolatry. It's not the gospel. That's elevating gifts above giver. Truly, God is most glorified in us only when we are most satisfied in him, not in the things of this world. See, true Christianity cries, Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. True Christianity has Jesus as its treasure, not stuff. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? Do you want Jesus? Or are you like Israel? like much of so-called American Christianity after what he can give you? Do you want Jesus or his stuff? I exhort you this morning to examine your treasure. Israel's heart was truly set on idols, but in verse 15 through 16, we, we see a change. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And so they put away foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Soon he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Israel authentically repents. They turn away from self and from idols. They put away their idols. And they say, God, we're going to come after you regardless of what you choose to do. They're essentially saying, we trust in your goodness. And we're going to follow you whether you deliver us or not. See, authentic repentance is not simply giving lip service. It's not simply behavior modification. It's a radical reorientation of your life around Jesus Christ. 
It is a continual, daily, moment-by-moment reality in your life. Because the reality is that you can say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And you can come to church and not be saved. Jesus says that many will say to me on the last day, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Sure, you've said the sinner's prayer once. But is there real, lasting, authentic change in your life? Many superstitiously think that because they prayed the sinner's prayer, that they have a get-out-of-hell-free card. They've escaped judgment. Tell you the truth, those will be the ones that will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because they haven't been changed. They haven't truly repented. Worldly sorrow. What's the reality of your life? Are you oriented around Jesus? Are you a Jesus person? Is there real, authentic change in your life? Is there fruit in your life? Or are you all about you? All about what you've filled in the blank with? Where is your treasure? Where is your heart? Repenting, believing, following Jesus means being all about Jesus. I think this is illustrated well when Jesus calls the disciples. He says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. They did not return to their nets or say, we believe, and then continue fishing. No, they followed him the rest of their days. They left their nets, their profession, their money, their homes, and they followed. In fact, they followed Jesus to their own deaths. Andrew and Peter were both crucified, Peter upside down. Tell me, does Jesus mean more to you than your own life? Too many times I hear Christians tell me that they can't give to missionaries or go on mission or tell someone about Jesus or adopt children or visit the elderly or help in the nursery or teach a class or you name it because it's too dangerous. It's too costly. It's too uncomfortable. It takes too much of their time. Really? If Jesus is supremely valuable to you, then you should supremely value his glory. We should shed our sweat, our blood, our tears, be willing to give our very lives for the gospel, for his name to be known. For every knee to bow at the name of Jesus. We should be willing to die. But the truth is, most of us are not even willing to give to Lottie Moon once a year at Christmas. Friends, for far too long, we have allowed ourselves to grow far too comfortable with a status quo American Christianity that's customized to fit our own wants, our own needs, and our own desires. We created a soft, comfortable, fluffy, teddy bear Jesus who never calls us to do anything that might make us uncomfortable or that might be dangerous. This make-believe Jesus is too safe. It's not real. Christianity is a call to die. It's a call to make Jesus known in the local community 
and in this world, globally. When was the last time you did anything that made you in any way uncomfortable for the gospel? When was the last time you did anything risky or dangerous for the gospel? When was the last time you laid down your crown of comfort to pick up the cross of pain and of suffering to follow Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Or are you just casting your nets back into the ocean? What's the reality of your faith? Friends, I implore you, reorient your life with an authentic repentance around Jesus. Follow him. At this point in our text, we enter into a short commercial. And uh, I'll let you read that portion of the text yourselves and just kind of give you a a little bit of an overview. Uh, But we see here that God responds to Israel's authentic repentance by raising up another judge savior, uh, something we've come accustomed to. This time it's Jephthah. And he's another unlikely choice. Uh, We'll see for for many reasons and even more when we uh, get down later on. Some crazy things happen with him. If you've read ahead, you know. Uh, But that's not till next week. Uh, But Jephthah, he's he's the illegitimate son of a prostitute. He's driven out of his house, probably uh, at a young age, by his half-brothers. So he comes from a pretty dysfunctional family, pretty dysfunctional background. Uh, We read there, we also learn that uh, he's a bit of a crime boss, a bit of an outlaw. He's also a mighty warrior. I love what what Keller says here, uh, probably because I'm a little bit of a nerd. He says, more romantically, we can think of Jephthah like a pirate. You know, pirates are kind of cool right now. You know, there's a whole bunch of movies about pirates. So that's how I like to think of them as as an outlaw pirate. Despite the fact that Jephthah is an outlaw pirate, God raises him up to be his judge savior. Jephthah didn't know it at the time. But because of his difficult experiences, because of his dysfunctional circumstances, he would be well-suited for the task to which God had called him. I think a a quick lesson from this here is that our experiences, our good days, our bad days, are never wasted. God is always using everything that happens to us uh, to uniquely fit us to function in a way that brings him glory and honor. So how has God used your circumstances to uniquely equip you to serve the purpose of glorifying him. Of serving your brothers and sisters in the church. How can you steward your gifts, your experience? Utilize your gifts and experience. Now in 11, uh, verses 4 through 11, we're going to see different characters, but some of the same action that takes place in chapter 10 repeated. Look with me. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why then have you come to me now in your distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah then said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people. They made him head and leader over them. 
Jephthah spoke all his words before the, Lord, before the Lord at Mizpah. So look at some of the parallels here. In chapter 10, verses 7 through 9, we see the Ammonite oppression. Chapter 11, verse 4, the author's highlighting the Ammonite oppression. Uh, in chapter 10, verse 10, Israel appeals to God uh, for deliverance. Chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, Gilead, Israel, appeals to Jephthah for deliverance. Chapter 3, God retorts sarcastically. I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. Uh, God retorts sarcastically. Chapter 11, verse 7, Jephthah retorts sarcastically. Chapter 10, 15 through 16, Israel repeats the appeal. They're repentant authentically. Chapter 11, verse 8, they repeat the appeal. Chapter 10, verse 16, God begins working to save Israel. And here, Jephthah agrees to take leadership over Israel. All these work together to show us the relationship between God and God's judge. The relationship between God's rescue and his rule. That you cannot have God's rescue without having his rule. If you'll note, Jephthah makes them ask with humility and the acceptance that his rescue comes with his rule. Keller points out for us that we're seeing God's people must learn that their treatment of God's judge is the way in which they are, in fact, treating God himself. The way Israel treats God's representative is indicative of how they treat God. Uh, You can think of it maybe like a U.S. ambassador to another country, or maybe a better example might be a a marriage. Uh, How you treat my wife is how you treat me. You can't mistreat Chelsea and be mean to Chelsea and then expect uh, me to be your friend, unless we're playing a board game. But how you treat my wife is, is how you're treating me. Likewise, how you treat God's representatives is how you're treating God. How are you treating God's people? How are you treating the church? First John tells us that uh, we've had this commandment that whoever loves God must also love his brother. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. What's your relationships? What do your relationships in the church prove about yourself? That you love God or that you're a liar? Admittedly, Uh, The church's biggest problem is often the church. It's often infighting. But that's because we're all sinners in need of grace. We would do well to extend to one another the grace that Jesus Christ has extended to us. How are you treating God's people? I I plead with you. uh, The church is imperfect uh, because I'm here, because you're here. But love it. Love the bride of Christ. How you treat the bride of Christ really shows how you feel about Jesus himself. Love the church. Lastly, I think that the author here, um, and, and when we look at the Bible as a whole, we ought to understand the judges that are raised up as types that point forward to the greatest judge savior, to the Lord Jesus. See, the way that Israel t- treats Jephthah is the way that they are, in fact, treating God. Likewise, the way that we treat Jesus is the way that we treat God. Keller notes, you cannot truly repent without acknowledging the right rule of Jesus. And you cannot have Jesus' rescue without accepting his rule. 
Israel would need to submit to the lordship of God and to the headship of Jephthah in order to have the rescue of God. Likewise, we must submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in order to have the rescue of Jesus. Who indeed was crushed for our iniquities. Who set his mind singularly on the will of the Father. Who treasured the glory of God above all else. Who lived the perfect life and utilized that perfect life so that he might die the perfect death and serve as a perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. As he took the penalty that we deserve. And he did all these things because he loves his bride. He loves the church. It's for the joy set before him. That he endured the cross. Did all these things that we might have peace with God. That we might inherit eternal life. That the damage sin has done to our relationship with God might be repaired. That we might worship him as our king, our treasure, and our great rescuer. There is no rescue from God without submission to his rule. Non-Christian, this message of peace with God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is for you. He says to you this morning, lay down your idols, lay down your nets, your efforts at making things work on your own. Repent of your sin and follow me. Christian, the same gospel is for you, the same message is for you. And it, it ought remind you of the glory of God. It ought stir your affections. Make you desire to make that glory known in your life, in this community, and to the very ends of the earth. Jesus says to those that have, to us that uh, can consider ourselves his disciples, to go therefore and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us, that he is with us to the very end of the age. He says to you, Follow me.